You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn once again to Genesis chapter 31. For those listening on our podcast, we've already read through the text. Um, we'll be covering the entire chapter today, so if you're listening, I encourage you to read through Genesis chapter 31 uh, before listening to the remainder of the message. Last week, we covered chapter 30, and we talked about uh, the insecurity wars that waged, uh, that raged between um, Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. Um, we also talked about some of the insecurity wars that raged between um, Jacob and Laban and their flocks and their prosperity. We said from a summary sentence last week that Christians must prepare to trust God rather than respond with envy and strife when he chooses to dispense his blessings in various degrees and forms to us and those around us. So the big point last week was that God blesses his people. God blesses those around us. He does that differently. Uh, he blesses differently. He blesses to varying degrees. And that as believers, we've got to learn to trust God with how he's choosing to bless us versus comparing ourselves to others versus desiring the same type of blessings maybe that God is giving to others, that God works differently in the lives of different individuals. And so uh, we tied it into what the text tied it into. If if God is choosing to bless one family with children and, and you're a part of a, a married couple that desires children and God has not yet given that to you, that you trust God's goodness in your life versus comparing your situation to the situation that you're looking to and desiring to be like. Um, that we have to learn to trust God and how he's working in our life versus being envious and then possibly creating strife because we're discontent with how God's working in the life of someone else. We talked about the fact last week that uh, trusting God is better than trusting in the human relationships that we're even talking about. And we taught it a lot to um, marriage and children and the discontentment that oftentimes comes with somebody in their uh, single state of life longing to be married uh, someone that's in a, a married situation now, longing to have kids, longing for that next step. Um, and we talked about how those relationships, that spouse that we long for, that child that we long for, ultimately is a well that runs dry, uh, that we can't bank on those human relationships satisfying us the way that Christ does, um, that the love that a spouse gives to us is not guaranteed. Right, We all stand to make vows at our weddings, but those vows are not guaranteed. Right, We are sinful human beings, and sinful human beings walk away from marriages all the time. Um, and so to bank everything on a spouse that may come one day to satisfy you completely is a false hope. It's a false expectation um, because that love is not fully guaranteed like Christ's love. We talked about how Christ loves us as his enemies, loves us into salvation, loves us, starts that work in us, finishes that work, and so his love is guaranteed. We talked about how uh, we may have some singles that never get married, that husband never comes, or we may have married couples who never see a child enter into their uh, their family, um, that Christ's presence is guaranteed, that we don't have to hope for, or long for, or try to hang on to Christ's presence, that Christ makes promises to us in Scripture that he's always with us. And then we talked about trusting God with our material prosperity, that God is the one who is the source of our gain, and then we are responsible to work hard and trust him for any further gain. We talked about working hard uh, when we're employed by ungodly bosses. Uh, Jacob sets a great uh, example for us in how he works hard in light of Laban's oppression towards him. 
Um, we talked about how Laban recognizes God's goodness in Jacob's life and that if we're doing what we should at our jobs, that uh, at a minimum, others should be able to see God's goodness in our life based on how we direct attention to his provision towards us. And so our application last week, we must faithfully praise God for his specific provision in our life rather than emphasizing areas we lack provision. So um, real basic that we want to be individuals that emphasize how God is providing for us versus emphasizing ways that he is yet to provide for us. So being content with what God has given us versus constantly wanting him or focusing on ways that he hasn't yet given to us. And that brings us to uh, Genesis chapter 31 today, just to kind of recap real quick and summarize the chapter that we've already looked at. Jacob and Laban at the end of chapter 30 had made this agreement that the flocks that come out um, not solid in color will be given to Jacob. Um, and then that really becomes the norm. It seems like the flocks are just constantly producing spotted and speckled and striped and Jacob's flocks are flourishing. And so at the beginning of chapter 31, Laban and uh, his kinsmen are starting to resent Jacob and his prosperity because they're no longer the ones that are prospering the most from this relationship. God tells Jacob it's time to go home, time to go back to his land. Conversation between Leah and Rachel, they say, you know what? We think our dad's a big cheat too. He's been dishonest with us and um, stolen from us, so we're ready to go with you. They set out to leave while Jacob uh, or while Laban is shearing his sheep. Um, shearing sheep would have been a several-day process. It would have taken Laban and his people away from Jacob, so that's the explanation for why it takes three days for him to even know that Jacob's gone. He pursues Jacob with every intent to resolve the situation, either through killing Jacob or bringing him back. Um, God intervenes and says, you're not going to harm him. You're not going to do good or bad to him. Um, and then there's reconciliation somewhat that happens when Jacob and Laban come together. Laban looks for the gods that he believes is stolen. They were stolen by Rachel. That doesn't come out though. Like he doesn't find them. God doesn't rebuke anybody for stealing here. We'll talk about that and why, um, in our sermon today, there's a treaty at the end that basically says you go your way. I'll go my way. Let's don't come back together. Let's just stay away from each other because we both don't trust each other. So just kind of a summary of chapter 31. Um, title of today's sermon, we never have to look for our God. And so we're going to tie this in with our summary sentence for today. A Christian should find comfort in knowing that our God is regularly looking after believers, ready to respond to injustice and danger with provision and protection, while other gods oftentimes cannot be found when they are most needed. For our kids' summary, our God is everywhere in the story while the other gods cannot be found. I think that's uh, an underlying uh, idea in this chapter, is that you see God everywhere in this story, right? God is leading preemptively Jacob to get out of town before Laban really rises up and does something about his discontentment, right? Like Laban's angry, but kind of angry in the shadows about the fact that Jacob's prospering and he's no longer prospering. God anticipates that. God reveals that to Jacob. God says, well, it's time to go, right? It's time to get out of here. We've stolen back from Laban what's rightfully yours. Uh, you've been blessed with a great amount of flocks, which is what's different when Jacob wanted to leave six years earlier, right? Remember, Jacob wants to leave and says, just give me my family and we're out of here and you'll just take everything. And Laban says, no, stay. 
Uh, what, what would it take to get you to stay? And God allows the six years to become very prosperous for Jacob. So he's not just leaving with his family now. He's leaving with a whole lot of flocks with him, okay? Um, so God's everywhere in the story. And then as Laban is trailing Jacob, Jacob may not even fully be aware of that. God steps in and intervenes in a dream and says, you won't touch him. You won't harm him. You won't put your hands upon him. Um, so God's everywhere in this story, and yet Laban spends the whole story trying to find his God, right? Like, where's my God at? You've stolen my God. I need my God and can't find his God. And Jacob is able to fully rest in the fact that his God doesn't have to be sought after, doesn't have to be looked for, that his God has been active all along. His God's been taking care of him and providing for him all along. So as Christians this morning, as we get ready to leave and face another week of uncertainty, with things that could or could not happen to us depending on God's sovereign will this week. As Christians, we find comfort in knowing that this week we don't have to look for our God, that our God is already looking after us. And he's gonna respond to injustice that comes our way. He's gonna respond to danger that comes our way by providing for us, by protecting us. And any other God that we would like to bank on this week, a spouse, a child, a job, a career, anything that we would like to bank our security on this week, oftentimes it's those things that can't be found when they're most needed. All right, we'll see that and we'll unpack that um, this morning as we get into our sermon. Some introductory notes just to kind of set the stage for us in this chapter. Uh, Jacob's departure here back to the promised land parallels Abraham's departure. Remember, he's gone back to where Abraham initially left. And so as God calls Jacob to leave, it's very similar to God calling Abraham to leave. So in the same way, Abraham expressed faith in God by leaving home and country to go to a land that he was not fully sure about. Jacob is expressing faith in the same way. He's leaving security. He's leaving what has become his uh, his comfort, right? He's in a great situation beyond the fact that Laban's a little eh with him right now. I mean, he's prospering. He's flourishing. Um, this is a great situation for him from a job standpoint. Everything's going Jacob's way at this point. Um, and God calls him out of a prosperous situation. Um, and so he has to kind of pull up his tents and be ready to move and ready to go uh, with God's prompting here. It also parallels Israel's departure from Egypt. Remember, Egypt, uh, Israel is allowed to plunder Egypt and take Egypt's stuff, and then Egypt regrets letting them go, and, and so Pharaoh tracks them down, and God has to step in and intervene there and says, you're not going to harm my people. Red Sea comes crashing down. Similar to here where Jacob has basically plundered Laban's stuff, taking it with him. Laban pursues in the same way, and God steps in and, and balks at that um, at that situation there too, where Laban wants to provide harm to his people. So some parallels there that we see as far as this departure goes. Um, and, and you could also argue that it parallels the departure that Christ initiates for us. Remember, Jesus talks about salvation in terms of a thief breaking into a house, right? He talks about binding the strong man and then taking his stuff, and he relates that to what he's done with Satan and how Satan captured mankind in the garden, right? And now Satan has has essentially bound Satan in certain ways to where now he's pulling and rescuing people back to him. So there's a departure for us too, where salvation is ultimately a call to leave, to leave the things of this world and to travel in faith to a world that's to come, to a land that is not of this world. Um, so there's some parallels there too with our own uh, situation. Jacob's been blessed with people and possessions, and now he needs a place 
We've talked about this before. If you're going to build a nation, you've got to have people, you've got to have possessions, you've got to have money, and then you've got to have a place to establish yourself. And so um, he's been very fruitful with his wives. God has blessed him with children who will essentially also have more children, who will have more children. So the nation, the people is being taken care of. The possessions are being taken care of, right? He's got his own possessions. He's about to go home and inherit all of Isaac's stuff as well. So the possession part is being taken uh, care of too. Now he needs that place to begin to establish uh, the nation that God has promised. Um, in this chapter two, maybe for the first time, really, Jacob is presented in a favorable light, right? His honesty and his integrity are highlighted here in this chapter. Um, he credits God appropriately. I want to draw attention to this because I think what you see in Jacob's life is spiritual progress, right? We've, we've talked uh, about Jacob's faults, and we've used that as an encouragement to us. Hey, Jacob uh, and his failures reminds us that God uses us, right? God loves us and forgives us, and so we can see Jacob and be reminded that it's only by Christ that salvation is possible because Jacob certainly doesn't earn salvation. He's a scoundrel. He, he makes mistakes and um, he deceives. But what we see here in this story is that as he's come to God in faith, there's been some spiritual progress, which is also true about us if we're truly believers, that he rescues us out of our sin. He takes us in our sinful state. He forgives us as we continue to work out our salvation, but there is a working out of our salvation. And Jacob is evidence of that, that there's a real turning of faith to God and, and trust and his honesty and his integrity are starting to become things that he's uh, more known for than his deception. God is the ultimate focus of this chapter. We've already talked about that for our kids that are taking notes. God is the focus of this chapter. He lives up to the promises made at Bethel. Remember, he makes promises to Jacob before Jacob gets back to Haran. And, and, you know, he says, I'm, I'm the God of your fathers. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. Then Jacob kind of gives him some expectations. Yeah, you'll be my God if you take care of me and provide for me and do these things for me. And, and God's living up to what he promised to do. And he's also going further to live up to Jacob's expectations for him. He's, he's intervening and protecting Jacob all through this chapter. It's also worth noting that Laban and all the other relatives are ignored for the remainder of the Genesis narrative after this chapter. You don't hear from Laban again. You don't hear from the people back here ever again. Um, they continue to go on. They continue to live out their lives and, and reproduce, but there's no more sending people back to find wives after this. Um, God has really begun to establish his people, and it will go forward that way without the relatives that Abraham left being brought into the story again. We're going to highlight two things about God this morning. First of all, the presence of God. The presence of God. What we see very clearly in this chapter is that God sees and acts accordingly. God sees and acts accordingly. So for our kids, God sees and he responds. He knows what's going on. That's what's really uh, encouraging in God revealing himself here in this chapter he doesn't have to be found like Laban's gods, right? And he doesn't have to be informed about some of the details of what's been taking place in Jacob's life, right? Jacob doesn't have to come to God and say, I've been treated unjustly. He doesn't have to come and say, Laban's been changing my wages dishonestly. He doesn't have to come and inform God. God sees all this. God acknowledges what's going on and that he's been aware of it. Um, in your notes there, Jacob acknowledges the provision of God in the face of injustice. Jacob ties his prosperity 
to God's gracious provision. Look what it says in verse um, four. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. And he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. Laban is now against Jacob, but God remains with him. And he's going to continue to be with him. When Jacob uh, encounters God um, personally again in verse 3, it says, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. That ongoing promise from Bethel that you have my presence. Again, God's omnipresent. God doesn't have to re-promise his omnipresence, right? What he's promising is his special presence. Jacob, I'm going with you, and I'm going to work good for you in every situation. We sang about that in our songs this morning, that God goes with us so he can be well with our soul in good times and bad times, that God is working good because he's sovereign and in control of everything. Laban's against Jacob because the tide has kind of turned. used to be good for Laban. He used to benefit from Jacob's presence. Now the tide has kind of turned and Jacob's prospering more. And so Laban's discontent with that. So he's now against Jacob. Laban changed the wages for Jacob, but God changed the flocks, right? It says that, um, you know that I've served your father, he tells uh, Rachel and Leah um, in verse six. You know I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. He goes on to say that, that Laban kept changing the deal. Oh, if they're spotted, then you can have them. Well, then that started to produce spots. And so he says in, uh, in, in verse eight, then he said, the striped ones can be your wages. Then all the flocks bore stripes. And so he kept coming back and changing the deal. Verse nine, thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Talks about the dream that God gave him and assured him that he was going to take care of him despite Laban's injustice towards him. God had insight about the gene structure. God knows that when they mate, that certain ones were going to produce this offspring where they weren't pure colored. God understood that. God knew that. Remember, Jacob doesn't take credit, doesn't take credit here for the growth in flocks based on the stuff he did in chapter 30, right? Remember, he was ripping sticks and stripes and putting them in front of the animals when they mated. He doesn't take credit for producing this. He says, this is really all God. It's all sourced in God. God understood the gene structure. God understood how they were going to mate and the type of uh, offspring they were going to have. All of my blessing comes from God. Your, your dad tried to cheat me, but God stepped in and intervened. God sees the faithful work of Jacob and responds to his affliction. Verse 12. He says, and he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you, right? Jacob doesn't have to come and say, look what Laban has done to me, God. God says, Jacob, I've seen what, what Laban's done to you. I'm already aware of it. And I'm working against that now. I'm working to give back to you what has been taken from you. We're called to work hard and maintain a high level of integrity in the face of mistreatment. This is Jacob's high character coming out that he continues to work hard. He even goes on to describe this. Um, we'll look at it briefly, and then we'll come back to it. Down in, um, towards the end of the chapter, uh, verse 36, then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin? Down in verse 38, these 20 years I've been with you. 
He says, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, right? He says, I've gone above and beyond to make sure that your animals produced in a healthy way. I've not eaten the rams of your flocks. He would have had every prerogative to feast upon the flocks as payment for his job. He said, I declined that. I didn't, I didn't do that. I, I, I gave up that right. Um, he says, uh, what was torn by wild beast, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. The way the code would have worked at that time is that if an animal comes in and eats of the flocks, the shepherd's not responsible for it, right? Like he would bring the torn animals to the owner. Uh, there would be an agreement that, okay, like you're not at fault for this. But Jacob said, I didn't even bother bringing them to you. I replaced them with my own flocks. I didn't, I didn't go to the trouble of trying to clear my name on this. Um, I bore the loss of it myself. From my hands, you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Jacob says, you were so harsh on me. You held me accountable for the flocks, whether I was there or wasn't there. If it was my shift or not my shift, I was the one that was bearing responsibility. So he says, I worked hard for you and I went above and beyond. There I was by day, the heat consumed me and the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I've served you faithfully. And God sees that. That's an encouragement to us, that God sees our faithfulness. Even when it's not being acknowledged by others around us, even when it's not being acknowledged by those that we work for, right? Like we can work hard and never be affirmed for it. And God reminds us that he sees it. God sees our faithfulness and God responds to that faithfulness. He comes to Jacob and he says, I've seen what Laban's done to you. I've seen your hard work. I've seen your high level of integrity. Rachel and Leah verify and acknowledge the injustice of Laban, of Laban, their father, based on their own experience. You know, they, they verify this and they say, you know what? Uh, husband, you're right. Like, he's stolen from us because the way it should have worked is that as, as Jacob paid for the right to marry them, that money should have been set aside in case something happened to Jacob, that there would be money to help take care of them. And they said, you know what? Dad's dried all that up. Dad used all that for himself. Like he hasn't had our best interest in mind. And so they're ready to give themselves to Jacob and give themselves to Jacob's God because they said, look, we can't trust our dad. Jacob acknowledges this provision coming from God. Right? He doesn't take credit for his hard work in saying, look what I did. He says, look what God did. God saw what was happening. He says, let me tell you, your dad's a cheat. And they're like, yeah, we see that. He says, my God sees that and my God responds to that. And my God has taken care of our family in light of that. God is given credit here by Jacob. For our kids, Jacob sees God taking care of him when others mistreat him. Right, And that's the promise, that's the assurance that we have, is that God takes care of us in light of the mistreatment that we may receive from others. God takes care of us. That's what, that's what we can cling to as believers, as his children, that our father, our dad takes care of us when others mistreat us. At some point, he steps in and says, this will not continue. Now, there's times where he lets us go through mistreatment because of the work that it accomplishes in us. He uses it for good purposes. But even if it means waiting until Jesus comes back, we have assurance in the letters to the Thessalonians that he comes back to make things all right. He comes back to vindicate the righteous and to judge the unrighteous. He comes and brings uh, light to all situations. We have that assurance as believers. Jacob acknowledges the provision of God. Number two, Jacob acknowledges the protection of God in the face of danger. Remember we said, 
uh, in our summary sentence, as Christians, we find comfort in knowing that God looks after us and that he responds to injustice and danger with provision and protection. Injustice was happening. God provided for Jacob. Danger is now going to occur and God protects his children. Jacob acknowledges the protection of God in the face of danger. He starts in verse 7 of chapter 31. says, um, you know, I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me. He's changed my wages 10 times, but what? God did not permit him to harm me. It's, it, it's reminiscent of the parameters placed on what Satan could do to Job, right? He says, uh, your, your dad's a cheat. Your dad keeps changing the wages on me. Um, he, he, he's, he's, he's hurting me from a financial standpoint, but God has prevented him from harming me ultimately, right? He says, the only thing that's holding Laban back from doing what he really wants to do is my God. Protection being applied to me. There's a hedge of protection, right? And 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 that's what we see in the case of um, of Job's situation, right? Like God says, you can do this, but you can't do this. You can do this, but you can't do this. Um, and so any evil that's in this world. Any evil plans from Satan and his forces answer to God. They answer to God and they're only permitted to go as far as God allows them to go. And that's what we see in the case of Jacob here. Jacob acknowledges God is protecting me. God is protecting me from your dad. This takes place also in verse 42. In verse 42, um, Jacob talking to to Laban, he says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night, right? Laban wants to kind of come and say, why didn't you tell me like I'd have taken care of you? I'd have sent you out with a bunch of fanfare and, and I would have provided for you and and Jacob steps up to the plate here and he says, no, like if I didn't have God, if God wasn't on my side right now, you would have taken everything from me. You would have stripped me of everything. He says, the only thing that stands between me and complete poverty from a material standpoint, from a relational standpoint, he's like, if it was up to you, you would have taken your daughters back. You would have taken everything from me. And what prevented that? My God. My God saw the danger that I was in and he protected me and he stepped in and intervened. And he attests to the fact that, look, I've been doing what I should be doing. He says, you know, God saw your injustice. God saw your intent to harm. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and he rebuked you last night. And so basically Jacob is is saying, God passed judgment last night when he came to you in a dream and said, don't touch him. He says, I've been vindicated here. I've been vindicated as the one that's doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And you've been shown to be the cheat. You've been shown to be the one, the author of injustice in this situation. I've not stolen from you. You've stolen from me. And and God steps in. and, And the encouragement to us is that God sees the whole story in our lives as well. And God steps in when appropriate to provide and to protect us as well. We see the presence of God here. But we also see the guidance of God. For our kids' notes, Jacob sees God taking care of him in dangerous situations as well. Jacob sees God taking care of him when people mistreat him. 
and also when he's in dangerous situations. The guidance of God now. God anticipates and directs accordingly. So first of all, we said that God sees, he knows what's going on, and then God acts, but God also anticipates and directs accordingly, right? Like God anticipated some things that could have happened and prevents them from happening. So on one side of the coin, we've got God seeing things that are happening, right? Like Laban's a cheat, Laban is stealing, Laban is being, Laban is being oppressive. Those things are happening. God sees it and God acts on it. The other side of the coin is that God anticipates things that could happen to us and he prevents them from happening. And for, for a lot of, for a lot of us, we will not know the amount of things that God anticipated and prevented in our life, right? We're blessed here to see into the story and we see what could have happened that had Jacob been permitted to stay and wasn't told to leave that maybe Laban rises up and, and kills him and, takes his stuff and his kids back. Laban could have easily tracked Jacob down. He had every intent to murder him. And if God doesn't step in and intervene, that would have carried itself out. We have no idea that the things that God has prevented from happening in our life because he loves us and cares for us and protects us, that he's a God who can anticipate. He's not just a God who reacts to things. He's a God who can anticipate things before they happen and prevent those things. He steps in and prevents Jacob from being harmed in Haran and then also steps in to prevent him from being harmed at Gilead. God knows what's going to happen for our kids and he plans accordingly. So number one, God leads Jacob through Jacob's own desires, his circumstances, his word, and the wisdom of others. Like we could probably stop here and do a whole sermon on how to know God's will for your life because that's what really plays out here for Jacob. And this is consistent with how I would answer, how do you know God's will for your life? Well, it starts and I had a, um, it was really cool because I had a guy that I hired for next year who I have really no relationship with, um, called me up and said, I need to ask you some spiritual questions. And one of the questions he asked was, how am I supposed to know God's will for my life regarding ministry? And so I started talking through the fact that well, for me, the reason that I'm in ministry is because it matches the desires that God has given me, right? Like I didn't get a special dream or a special word from God. I didn't go to a special conference and have God start dropping instructions down to me. God gave me desires in my heart. He gave desires in my heart to do what I'm doing. And I responded to those God-given desires. They match up with his word. They were confirmed by other people who I sought wisdom from. And so I act on the desires that God gives me. And that's exactly what happens in Jacob's life. God gives Jacob desires that align with his will. In the chapter before, six years earlier, Jacob's like, hey, I'm ready to go home. And he comes to Laban and says, I'm ready to go home. I don't care that you've stolen everything from me. I'm ready to go home. His dad is still alive, right? Like we thought he was gonna die, but they they misdiagnosed him and he's still alive at this point. And remember, mom is special to him. And he says, I want to go home. And they work out a deal where, where Laban says, no, no, let me take care of you. I'll pay you more. And he stays. But God has already started stirring in him. He's already created this desire. So when he comes and tells Jacob to leave, Jacob's like, great. Like, that's, that's my desire. So, so God gives him desires that go along with God's will. God directs circumstances that confirm his will, right? So Jacob's sitting around thinking, what does the next 10, 15, 20 years of my life look like? 
And God starts to stir in his heart and he says, you know, I'd, I'd like to go home. I'd, I'd like to move. I'd like to go to this new place and live there and, 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 and establish my family there. But that wasn't enough for him to act on that yet, right? God hadn't told him to go. It was just, just, just kind of an initial desire. And then circumstances started to kind of dictate it, right? Like God providentially allows him to hear of Laban's disdain for him, right? Back at the beginning of chapter 31. Now Jacob heard the sons of Laban were saying that Jacob has taken everything from our father, that he's gained everything of our fathers. And Jacob saw Laban didn't have regard for him like he did before. Like Jacob starts to pick up on a circumstantial change. Like he sees Laban in passing and Laban used to be all giddy, like I'm taking advantage of you. I'm stealing all your stuff. And now he sees him and, and Laban looks angry and kind of cold with him and he says, something's not right. Like Laban's not the same. Starts to overhear conversations where they're not happy with how the tide has turned. So he's got desires to go home. Now his circumstances are starting to say, you know what? It might be wise to go home. And then God comes to him and, and clearly gives him a word that says, it's time to go home. God calls us specifically through his word. Jacob is acting in faith towards God's revealed will. So we've got desires, we've got circumstances, and now we've got Jacob seeking God through his word and God directly reveals to him. Now, it'd be great if God gave us direct revelation about what job to take and what house to buy and, and, and where to live and, 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 and all these type of things that we wrestle with, who to marry. Like, it'd be great if God said, do this, do this, do this, do this. He doesn't do that for us, really. Right? He, he's, he's given us desires. He's given us circumstances and, and wisdom that we can gain from observing our circumstances. He has given us direct revelation through his word. And the Bible assures us that it is sufficient. It is sufficient for our life. So we don't need to come to God's word and say, it would be better if it told me who to marry and what house to buy and what job to take. It wouldn't be better. It's sufficient the way that it is. And there's enough revelation here to guide us into making good decisions. And the fourth component that I think is crucial to Jacob uh, responding to God's leading is that God confirms his will through the insight of others. Jacob finds validation through what his wives have experienced as well. The, the conversation seems to be that it's still up into the air as to ha whether he's going to leave or not. Right? Like he's coming to his wives and he's presenting his case. But it's their response that really solidifies, okay, get on camels and let's go. Too often times, I'm afraid that we come to people in our life that we respect greatly and we come to inform them of what we plan to do versus asking them what they, what they think we should do. Like this happens a lot of times. People come and say, hey, want to, want to meet with you, want to ask your opinion, want to get your guidance on something. And you may have experienced this. You start to try to give some insight and you realize, we're not here to talk about what you should do. We're here for you to tell me what you're going to do, right? Like, you're not really here to hear my wisdom. You're just here to tell me what you plan to do. And the Bible talks a lot about how we gain wisdom and insight from listening to others. And Jacob comes to his wives and says, am I missing anything here? Because this is what I perceive to be the case. Your, 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 your dad's a cheat and God provides for me. And God says we need to go. And his wives say, you are absolutely right. Right? There's no, there's no hesitation on their part. And so when we talk about God's will for our life, 
We, we measure our desires with his will. We measure our circumstances with our desires and his will. And then we need to go to that fourth step and say, hey, I'm going to seek out some people that are aware of me and my circumstances and see what their thoughts are on this as well. Jacob does all those things. Jacob moves in the right direction. He packs up and he leaves. For our kids, God always guides people to do his will. He doesn't hang us out to dry. God is always faithful to guide us in the right direction. All right, number two, God prevents Laban's continued hostile plans. Laban finds out that they're gone, and the words for Laban's pursuit are very militaristic in their usage, meaning Laban has every intent to hunt him down and to kill him. God knows this, and God prevents it, right? God prevents his continued hostile plans first by limiting the power that he is allowed to exercise. Verse 29 of chapter 31, God steps in and says, nope, you don't get to carry out what you want to do. Verse 29, it is in my power to do you harm, Laban said, but the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. I heard some discussion as to what, what does God mean by that, that you can't say anything to him good or bad. Um, cause then he says a bunch of things to him and it's like, he say anything good or bad. Cause he was told not to. The essence of what he's being told is that you can't do anything good to try to persuade him to come back to you. He's done that before, right? Hey, we'll, we'll, we'll change the deal. We'll make it favorable for you. He also can't do anything bad that would force him to come back. Okay. So God steps in and says, He's gone. He's leaving. And you're not permitted to do anything good that would entice him to come back with you. You're not allowed to make any type of threats that would force him to come back with you. What's interesting is that it's the same language used in Genesis 24, 50, when Abraham's servant comes to Laban. Remember, they're looking for Rebecca, comes and kind of lays out that whole story. And Laban's response at the end of it is, we can't say anything good or bad about this because this is clearly from the Lord. It's the same language. The first encounter, Laban realizes that God's at work. The second encounter, he's forgotten that, and God has to remind him, you can't say anything good or bad about this because we're doing something and you're not a part of it. And you don't get to intervene. I'm intervening. All right, so God protects uh, Jacob here. Um, He's not permitted to do anything good or bad to persuade him. He's not allowed to find his missing gods, right? Like this is kind of a weird part of the story for me uh, when I first read it. This is the first time idols are mentioned in the Bible. And we've said all along in Genesis, when you have first mentions of things, it's typically important. So let's pause for a second here. We've got Rachel ripping her dad off and and taking the family idols. These would have been small, like uh, rock or wooden type figurines that were really important to the family. And she steals them. Okay, and so Laban shows up with his whole big full force army type people with him. And to kind of save face, I think he starts to, well, we're here for our gods because your God said, I can't harm you. I can't do anything. Like, I'm really here because I'm mad you left. You took my daughters. Tries to present himself as a victim. Jacob's like, you're not the victim in this situation. Like, you're the cheat. Then he's like, ah, we're actually here for our gods. Like, you stole our family gods. It's the first mention of idols. Um, we had some time, uh, you hopefully had some time to talk this morning. Why did Rachel steal the gods? Um, why did she steal these things? If she's, if she's confessing that she wants to follow Jacob's God, why would she steal these things? We're not told. Um, so really any answer is speculation at best. Some commentators tie it to the fact that if you possess these things, 
you possessed the inheritance of the family. So Rachel's taking them so that they could potentially use them in the future to gain uh, a foothold into Laban's inheritance and to take back maybe additional things they feel like that he's stolen from Jacob. Um, she may also have taken these to prevent Laban from following them through divination. Remember, we talked about just kind of the weird occultic practice that Laban was obviously involved in to where he was seeking guidance and had gotten some guidance from non-godly sources that said God's the source of all this provision for Jacob. She may have really believed that he could gain wisdom and insight from these gods and says, uh, we're going to get out of here, so let's take the advantage of him being able to seek guidance from his gods. Um, some other speculations is she's simply trying to pay him back. Like she's just trying, like one last uh, oof to you for doing everything you've done to us. I'll take your gods from you. Um, others speculated that um, she may have seen this as added protection. Um, and additionally, some added fertility for her that she may have seen kind of a, a, a polytheistic view here that, yeah, I'm all about Jacob's God, but these gods have also done some good things for us as well. And so why don't we just have the best of both worlds? Um, why was Laban still looking for these gods? You know, I posed the question, he just had a dream encounter with the true God. Why, why would he want false gods the next morning? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speculate just a little bit here, but in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 2, says, for the household gods utter nonsense and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep and they are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. There's several passages in the New Testament that talk, or in the Old Testament that talk about false gods being tied to demons. So for me, I don't think it's, it's, it's unlikely to say that Laban had also experienced some real encounters with his false gods, right? Like if you've just been worshiping some, some rocks and never had them answer you and never seen anything happen, you would think the first time you encountered a God that talked to you in a dream, you'd say, let's throw these away. This is the one true God. But I think about Elijah on Mount Carmel and he's like, hey, y'all want to have a competition? Let's, let's call down fire from heaven. And I'm thinking, why would anybody agree to that? unless you really believed it could happen, that your God really works that way. And you see these prophets of Baal say, yeah, they're false gods because they're not God, but that doesn't discount the fact that there are demons who work through false worship uh, to where there could have been some experiences that led them to believe, no, I really need these gods because I've seen them do things and I've talked to them and they've talked back. We don't know for sure, but he is dead set on getting these things back. I think what's what's odd to me is that clearly stealing is wrong. So why would God allow this to stay hidden? Why would God not like call it out and say, Rachel, you shouldn't have stole. Like that's not okay. I think part of it's tied to the fact this is the first time idols are mentioned. Um, and remember, this is written to Israel who's leaving Egypt full of false gods and about to go into Canaan. So fast forward to the Exodus. They're reading Genesis. Moses is writing this to the children of Israel. And I think God wants them to understand the first time they read about idols, that this is the impression they're left with, is that they don't get found when they're needed most. And I don't think it's an accident that she hides it the way that she does, right? And I think Jacob's probably following her, following Laban around. 
Like, I don't think he just said, go do whatever you want to and check back with me and see if you find anything. I think he probably went with him. So Jacob, who really believes they don't have him, walks into the tent and Rachel says, hey, I can't get up because, you know, it's that time. Jacob would have said, no, it's not. Like, what are you hiding? So I really think it was that time. And she's sitting in that state on these gods. It's a completely unholy type of a setting, right? Like later on, the, the law is going to tie that time for a woman to uncleanliness and unholiness, and there needs to be a purification that takes place. And I think God wants to leave this lasting impression for the Israelites that false gods, their proper place is in that type of setting. They have zero worth, right? Like whatever a woman is sitting on at that time, gets discarded as quickly as possible, right? Like there's no value to it. In fact, in some places, our good works are, are pictured that way as well, right? Like no value, like just 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 not, just, just kind of a worthless picture. I think God wants to leave that lasting impression for Israel as they read this for us, that these gods have zero value and we're not gonna even allow them to be found here. Do I think he still potentially judges the sin? Possibly, because what's Jacob's, verdict. If you find them on somebody, what happens? We can kill that person. Rachel never makes it back home, does she? Like she dies and she gets buried not in the promised land. And it's not tied to this like in the in the passage, but it may be tied to this because she dies prematurely. She dies in, in, in childbirth, childbirth. She dies giving birth to Benjamin. And it may be God bringing forth the fruit of her sin potentially as well. He doesn't mention it here because I think it was of greater importance for him to send a message about idols. In my notes, I put, um, if your God cannot be relied upon when needed, then your God isn't God. If your God cannot be relied upon when needed, then your God isn't God. Jacob is looked after and protected by his God while Laban is looking for and trying to protect his gods. That's the, the polar opposites here. God's looking out for Jacob. God is protecting Jacob. Laban is looking for his God and trying to protect his God. That's true for any God that we would like to raise up in our life that's not God. Going back to last week, spouses and children and jobs and careers, and we always wake up next to Leah, right? We always wake up disappointed. Those things can't satisfy us. And when we most need them, they're not there. And it shows that they're not God. If we can't rely on them when we need them, then they're not God. Laban's limited in his power that God allows, and then he's thwarted from continuing in his evil plans. Uh, he presents himself as a victim, but Jacob's character and his rebuke reveals him as the cheat. God, I think, uses this uh, last speech that we've already read through for Jacob to rebuke Laban's sin, to kind of bring it to light. Um, Laban doesn't really have a great response for it, probably tied to what 1 Peter 2.15 says. Um, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, right? Jacob says, here's what's really happened. And Laban just kind of bows his head and goes along with it and says, all right, let's make a treaty. Um, the families become their own entities through this treaty. And we'll close with this. What you have taken place here is two distinct family groups separating. And that's necessary because Laban's descendants are not part of Israel. And up to this point, 
Jacob's people had kind of morphed into Laban, and Laban was in charge of everything, and now there's a separation that takes place, and there's two people groups that leave this treaty. And there's a lot of twos that take place in this treaty, uh, two names for the places. Um, go down to verse 44. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set up a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. They took stones and made a heap. They ate there by the heap. Uh, Laban calls it that one name. Jacob calls it another name. Um, they both mean the same thing, but there's two languages being spoken here. Again, a, a nod to the fact that there are two people groups that are coming out of this treaty. Um, there's multiple gods that are mentioned here. Um, says, uh, verse 53, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor. Um, most commentators believe that this should really be translated as two separate gods, that you have your God, we have our God, that it's not the same God. Um, he goes on to call, Jacob goes on to swear by the fear of his father Isaac. He uses that term twice. Um, we're not told what the name really means or where it comes from or why the fear is tied to Isaac. A lot of commentators uh, want to believe that it's tied to the fact that Isaac is still alive, that he's the God of Abraham, but Abraham has died. And then we, also, we oftentimes hear the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob after they've passed away. But there may be some uh, mindset here by Jacob that he's calling him the current God of Isaac because he's still alive and he talks about the fear. And, and we know that there's passages in scripture that talk about the, the reverent, appropriate fear that we're supposed to have um, towards God. And so a lot of commentators tied it to the fact that, that it's because he's still alive. Um, again, we're not told exactly why he references this, um, but, but I think that's a, that's a good case um, because of the fact that he's going back home to his dad. But it's clear, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, um, that he's present throughout this whole chapter, right? That he's the provider. He's the one that's looking after his people. He doesn't have to be sought. He doesn't have to be looked for. He doesn't have to be informed that he's the one that's acting throughout this chapter. He's providing. He's protecting. When injustice is happening and when danger is about to occur, God is stepping in continually, which leads us to two application points. Or for our kids' notes, God is able to stop any evil plan. God is able to stop any evil plan. He stopped Laban initially, and then he prevents any future work by Laban because this treaty basically means you can't cross this. Like, we're separate. We're two different peoples. Don't come back. Again, don't use that verse for good Christian fellowship because that's not what um, is going on there. Application for both our kids and our adults, be encouraged. We serve a God who remains with us through affliction and works for our good. Like we should read this and not, there's no way to read this and be a believer and not find encouragement from this chapter because the God of Jacob, the fear of Isaac, the God of Abraham is the same God that we're worshiping this morning, the same God we're praying to this morning. He hasn't changed. This is still how he functions, right? He still sees injustice happening in, in our lives and he still responds to that injustice. So we should be greatly encouraged this morning because we serve a God who remains with us through affliction and works for our good. 1 Peter 5.10, a New Testament passage that, that relates this same truth. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's exactly what he does to Jacob, right? He restores Jacob to his proper place. He confirms Jacob in front of the whole family, both families, that, that we're, we're not at fault here, right? He strengthens him and establishes him as he begins to build the nation of Israel. And God does the same thing for us. He carries us through affliction, works good for us. Number two, remain faithful. Remain faithful. Laban's search for his gods reminds us that anything we give our affection to other than Yahweh can flee us, can hide from us. We can't count on it, right? We can't count on anything this world offers to satisfy us the way that Christ does. We have to go looking for that stuff. It's not there when we need it. Right? There's no guarantee that we wake up next to our spouse tomorrow for those that are married. There's no guarantee that we wake up tomorrow with the same amount of kids that we go to bed with tonight. There's no guarantee of that. There's no guarantee that we wake up tomorrow with the same health that we have today. There's no guarantee of that. So if we're banking all of our joy and all of our hope and all of our satisfaction in the gifts that the giver gives to us, we're going to be found wanting at some point in our life. At some point, that well dries up. At some point, it seeks to satisfy. And even if it doesn't, there's still this looming threat that it will, right? There's still this looming threat that my spouse could leave at any time, that I could lose a child at any time. There's still this looming threat that what I love today may not be here tomorrow, right? We all know good parents that have grown, they've they've seen their kids grow up and their kids wander away and want nothing to do with them. So the gods that we try to establish that are not named Yahweh can flee us, can hide from us, can be taken from us. The only thing that lasts, the only thing that truly satisfies is the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, Christ who has come to set us free from sin and death, Christ that we long to see come back to rescue us once and for all when he makes all things right. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning and we praise you and thank you that you are a God who sees everything and responds with justice. We thank you that you are a God who loves us and who works good for us. And God, we're thankful for reminders like the story with Jacob, that when people are mistreating us and not dealing with us the way that's appropriate, that you see it and that you respond and act accordingly towards it. At some point, you step in and say enough is enough and you intervene for your children. God, we're thankful that when danger presents itself, that you are a God who can protect and can stop any evil plan. Whether it's motivated by Satan, whether it's motivated by a human in our life, you can stop any evil plan if you choose to. God, we praise you and thank you this morning that there are things that you have stopped and thwarted that we have no idea about in our life. God, we realize that there has been protection applied to us and provision applied to us that we can't even fully give you credit for today because we're not aware of it. We praise you and thank you for the sorrows that you've spared us from, from the heartache that you've prevented us from feeling. And yet, Father, we realize that there are times when you carry us through those things. And so, God, we are thankful for your provision in the midst of affliction. We are thankful that you are a God who we don't have to look for in time of need, that you are a God who presents himself as a God who is constantly looking after us. God, we're thankful that we aren't uh, 
experiencing futile attempts to find you like Laban. That we don't experience the futile attempts that the Baal prophets experienced when they cried out to their gods and got zero response. We are thankful that you are a true and living God. A God that can be counted upon and trusted. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged by that today. Specifically, that we would be encouraged to remain faithful to you. Help us to enjoy the gifts that you've given us this week, to enjoy our spouses and our kids, to to thrive in our jobs, to enjoy the recreation that we can enjoy this week as we get out into your created world. Help us to enjoy those things appropriately and to give credit to you as the true source of all joy and satisfaction that we experience. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.